You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Terry, which is from our sermon series, The Beatitudes, Jesus's Talk on the Hill. For more information, please visit our website at www.creekside.org. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Boy, you sound good. Look good. And uh, good morning to our online friends. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining with us as well. If you would, uh, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, the talk on the big hill that Jesus gave, uh, it's so important because he's ushering in his kingdom. He's kind of teaching it in. And he's starting to move toward some of the values and the ethics of what the kingdom of God looks like. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up uh, in verse uh, 17. Quick question people ask. Is the Bible really God's word? Is it? Yes. Yes. It's a critical question uh, because from an Orthodox Christian perspective, everything rises and falls with this word. If you were to look at most doctrinal and theological statements of churches online that would be considered evangelical in nature, believing in Jesus Christ as the one and only the way, the truth and the life to God, what you're going to see there is inerrancy of scripture. The veracity of the Bible is going to be the number one theology. Because if you can't trust that, uh, what can you trust? If you don't believe that it is the inspired given word of God, well, nothing else really makes sense from it. You can't trust anything else that it says. So, So this is a crucial point since the Bible is not merely or it is our primary source of knowledge about God. It's our one and only repository of special revelation concerning the existence of divinity and his will, his purpose, and his plans for creation and humanity, which is you and me. This implication should be obvious. We can't trust, if we can't trust the Bible, we really have no foundation whatsoever No way to really know the truth about God. I'm going to read from a little passage today. We're probably going to spend a couple of weeks on it uh, just because it's kind of chock full of some important things. But let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus has just moved from what we talked about the last couple of weeks, uh, the truth of we are salt and light. It's not what we do. It's who we are. Wherever we go. That's what we are. We are truth. We are the truth is, is that we are salt and light to the people around us. So Jesus comes in verse 17 and he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now here's what's going to happen. We'll find out about this next week. Jesus didn't just come to fulfill them, but he came to raise the standard, to show us exactly how much we need Jesus in our lives to lead us and to guide us and to direct us. And he says, for truly I tell you, and for a lot of the rest of chapter five, you're going to see that verbiage. For truly I tell you, I tell you, you've heard it said, 
but I say. And he's going to be changing some of the ways that these people were thinking in that time and even for us today. This is an emphatic statement for truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter uh, that he's talking there about the smallest letter, the iota, iota of the Greek language. He says the iota, the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter. And now he transfers to the Hebrew language and the writing of a Hebrew, which when they would write, they would have these little marks at the end. It's literally the little horn. It's kind of like some of us, we make a straight Y and it goes down. Uh, Others of us, we go down and then we kind of make a little loop. It would almost be like that, that little loop that you add to it. He says that thing, not even that will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And I want to just establish and remind us of the power and the place of God's word in our lives. How important it is. Because that's what Jesus says here. He says, I'm going to tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Here's a truth to write down. It is totally incongruent to take Jesus seriously and not his word as the absolute truth. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. It's incongruent to say Jesus is great up here and over here say, yeah, but the Bible, eh, I don't really care for that. Because the essence is, is that in John 1, it says that Jesus is the living word. He is the way, the truth. In the life, everything of this Bible is systemic to and points to the life of Jesus. Let me give you just a couple of books that you might want to kind of do some reading on your own to grow in this area. And I use these for this talk, uh, but a helpful book and resource uh, was written uh, by on these evidences that I'm going to talk about uh, was evidence that demands a verdict uh, by Josh McDowell. And then uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Uh, Both of them started out as atheists and they ended up coming to Jesus. They were trying to disprove him and now their ministry is about proving him. And it's all because of their time in the word and learning about it. So I just want to share some of those things with you. I want to talk about the Bible's uniqueness. The Bible is the most read, best-selling, most translated book in history. But that's not why it's God's words. It's that way because it is God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 17 and 16, 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed. Do this. <sighs> Breathe out. Oh, baby, maybe better not. <laughs> Sorry. Don't do that. Check that. Rewind. Hey, okay, we'll just leave it there. Um, <laughs> because that's what it's saying, that all scripture is breathe, God breathed. It's like when he breathed into the nostrils of humanity, man, Adam and Eve at the creation. That's what he did with his word. That phrase, all scriptures, God breathed in the Greek, uh, the, the, uh, it's theonoustos. Theo refers to God. Noustos refers to the breath or uh, sometimes the breath of the spirit. The Bible was not simply writers having God breathed into them, but it's literally the idea is that God breathed the literal words of the Bible 
and they begin to write. It's his word. No other book in the history of mankind has made such an audacious, audacious claim. 2 Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy came by the will of man. Man didn't make this book. Man didn't even come up with the ideas. Why is that? Because remember what? Don't do it. But God breathed. It's as if he exhaled out and there it was. There was the creation of this thought in his words. We believe that every one of these are words that are, are true, that this is the inerrant word of God. The things that they spoke or wrote were God's words, not theirs. And we see this outworking through this process of, first of all, the composition of the Bible's 66 books. It's got two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's composed by more than 40 authors who God breathed to them. They were kings, fishermen. They were poets, statesmen, scholars, doctors, religious persons. They were from different cultures, different areas. This, the, the, one of the incredible things is that it was written over a 1,600-year time span in three languages. Uh, they wrote on extremely controversial subjects, spanning a wide range of literature, from narrative to law to teaching, personal letters, journaling, biography, parable, allegory, prayer, poetry, history, prophecy, and apocalyptic literature. But the powerful thing is, is that it's not just an anthology or a collection of writings, but there's a unity that binds it all together, clearly suggesting the guiding hand beyond a human author. To be able to bring this together over a 1,600-year a period is truly a miracle. It's also not only in its composition is it unique, but in its circulation. The Bible is the bestseller of all time. I remember growing up, McDonald's first came out. It was, uh, I don't know, I think I was like five or six, and we'd go by on McLaughlin Boulevard up in Milwaukee. <clears throat> we'd see the McDonald's, the Golden Arches. And if you remember their big sign, uh, they started doing this 100 sold, 100,000 sold, 200,000 sold. And then, I don't know if they still do that at the places where they have the golden arches, wherever those are now. Pretty soon it was millions sold. That's, that would be the marquee for the Bible. Literally, its circulation has been in the billions, and it continues to be the most widely read book in the world today. No book has been translated into more languages than the Bible. There have been at least 3,400 translations of different parts of the Bible into different languages around the world, and they still have this army of translators that are working to get it out. It's durability. No book has ever inspired such opposition as this book. None. There's been persecution. It's been burned. It's been banned. It's been besmirched. It's been criticized, dissected, and debated like no other book in history. Yet, it has outlived every one of its detractors. As a matter of fact, a French philosopher Voltaire said in the 1700s, he said, within a century, the Bible will no longer be on earth. So 300 years ago, it's still a bestseller. Its circulation is incredible. Its durability is incredible. But here's the key thing, its effect. 
Its effect on millions who have reported how reading the scriptures have changed their lives, transformed their perspective and their vision for life and for living. Most books don't survive past seven years. How many of you have a novel that you've read over and over? I love John Grisham. Uh, I have almost all of his books, but I've never read one more than once. Nobody reads novels on over yet people People study the scriptures for a lifetime. They read it and they reread it. Why? Because Hebrews 4 tells us that this book is active and alive and you may read something. I was in my office the, uh, yesterday and Trina comes running in and she goes, listen to what I learned. I've read it before, but this is what God showed me today. And that's the way the Bible works. You can read a passage a hundred times. And then all of a sudden God says, let me breathe this into your spirit. I love this book. A lot of you, I would pray that all of you, but a lot of you I know, you make it a daily routine where you understand the life-altering, transformative power that this book, <clears throat> excuse me, guides and brings to your daily life and your daily living. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 32, knowing the truth, not the truth, but knowing the truth will set you free. It feeds your soul. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, your words were found and I ate them and your words brought joy and delight to me. Who could use some joy and delight? <laughs> Go to the word. Begin to read about Jesus and the hope and the life that he speaks and the grace that he gives and the direction that he gives. See, it's in this book, it's here that people discover God. They see themselves more clearly. They feel comforted, challenged. They gain wisdom for life. Why they're here, their purpose, and how to be clear about when they die. Okay, it's, it's unique. We, we get that, but can it be trusted? I mean, is it really God's word? Well, the Bible <clears throat> is really accurate and reliable. And two things I want you to see that it's historical veracity. It, first of all, it's historical veracity because it's rooted in history. Literally, it is God's, his story. It's set forth in our history. It's full of dates, places, people, and events that are subject to normal historical scrutiny. And if it could be demonstrated that the Bible is full of a bunch of historical errors, then it would be reasonable to question the veracity of its statements about God. But if the evidence is clear cut and it shows that it's accurate historical, it's reasonable to assume that it's accurate about God, the creator of all. The second issue is the reliability of the text. Can we be confident that we have substantially the same documents in our time that the people had centuries ago? Well, first, historically, if the Bible was consistently being contradicted by history, yes, it would be difficult to have a strong faith. I remember in, in historical theology, learning about these guys at beginning in the, 19, uh, the 19th century, there was these German theologians that were led by F.C. Brouwer, uh, Julius Wellhausen, and Rudolf Bultmann. These guys led the full court press 
truly a full court press of criticism and skepticism against the reliability of the Bible. And they were scholars. And it began to spread and people really picked up a lot of their thinking. Rudolf Bultmann said, you can know nothing of the historical Jesus. There's no need to put your faith in the historical Jesus. Put your faith in, it's all right to believe in the kerygma, the proclamation from the church and this transcendent Christ, but we can know nothing of the historical Jesus. So right there, he totally undercuts the scriptures that say Jesus came in the flesh to show us the father and to be God who would die for the propitiation for our sins. Rudolf Bultmann. You can know nothing about the historical Jesus. Fellhausen, he was an Old Testament historian. After a while, he began to question the Torah and Moses' authorship of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Part of his beef was with Genesis chapter 14. Because there was this way that was bored, it talks about in Genesis 14, between four kings from Mesopotamia and five kings from the Dead Sea region. His point was that came to take in place. There's absolutely no historical record of it. We have no writings of it. We know nothing about it. Isn't it interesting that some years later, archaeologists from Egypt unearthed a library that detailed and described this battle between four Mesopotamian kings, and they waged war against five kings near the Dead Sea area, and they dated it back to Abraham's time which is Genesis 14 time frame. Bible critics said the same thing about the Hittite civilization that's mentioned in Genesis. Most people believe, man, that doesn't exist because there's no record of it apart from the Old Testament. In 1906, archaeologists discovered the first of many cities. They were unearthed that made up the Hittite Empire. Prior to this, you know what? You would have been considered, most people were considered fools to believe the Bible. Uh, and a lot of times they'd use and mention the Hittites as their proof text. Today, you can get a doctorate or degrees in Hittite studies. Now, throughout history, many have tried to, discover, to discredit the Bible. Hear me, loved ones. I could go on and on. That's why I want to encourage you. If this is something that fascinates you, kind of quickens your pulse. Get some of these books and read them. So you can begin to understand the, the, the veracity of the scriptures historically. A Jewish archaeologist expert, Dr. Nelson Gluck, said this. It may be stated that no archaeological discovery has contradicted a biblical reference. I can dig that. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Either that was really bad or, or you're really slow. Which one is it? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good answer. Okay. Hey, textually, the second evidence is the manuscripts or the texts. The question is, how do we know that the Bible is in keeping with the words that we actually read from and take in today? That it's fairly original from the, 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 when it was wrote about centuries ago. Well, the evidence is oftentimes found in the manuscripts. As you look at manuscripts, there's two questions that you consider. The first is this. How many manuscripts are there and how closely do they compare? There's an entire 
area of biblical studies that deals with this called textual criticism, but it's also very similar to just historical classical criticism of authors from antiquities. And what it does is, is it really looks at and investigates the purity of all ancient literature and its evaluation is really based and built upon the number of manuscripts that we can have. And what's the interval, what's the time between what we, the, the, the farthest dated manuscript and the last copy that we have? So consider the Old Testament. For centuries, the method of transmission was they had these, uh, they had these Jewish scribes who would copy the manuscripts. And for them, this was a sacred, a sacred thing to do and a sacred trust. So how accurate are these? Well, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 gave us an incredible opportunity to find out. Most of you have heard about them. Before their discovery, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, so the oldest manuscripts we had were from about 916 A.D. But get this, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained manuscripts as far back as 150 B.C. In a comparison with the book of Isaiah... They proved to be word for word in more than 95% of the text. And most of the errors were spelling and punctuation. Now, I could give you a whole bunch of different classical writings, but uh, time doesn't permit me. Again, you can do the research but, or the reading on it. But Homer's Iliad is often regarded as the most accurate of classical literature. We have around 690 different manuscripts that we can compare. So when you can compare them, obviously, the more close they are, uh, the, the more close that the texts are and say the same thing, there, there's a veracity to that that you can trust. Homer's Iliad that nobody questions has 640 different manuscripts. The New Testament has more than 5,300 manuscript documents that we can compare today to determine the authenticity of the Bible. So when experts compare all of these manuscripts together, they find that there are about 184,000 plus words in the New Testament and scholars have a problem with about 400 of those words, about 1.2%. But those words do nothing to affect the biblical teaching, the doctrines as we understand them. They are a little more than spelling and grammatical areas, uh, errors as well. None of them affect the full meaning of the text. Josh McDowell and, that I mentioned earlier, I, I got to see him when he was younger. He's older than me. Um, if that's possible, I guess, right? But he's older than me. And when I was uh, just starting uh, Bible college, he was doing a seminar, very gifted, very articulate, very bright man. And when he was in college, he loved to eat Christians. I mean, he just said, you know, I want to go into class and just eat them up. I want to tear them down. I want to, you know, eat their, their, their spiritual lunch and make fun of them and do all those things. So he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set myself to disprove the Bible. He had over 400 hours of research. You can hear his testimony in a lot of different places. Read about it. But he spent over 400 hours to disprove the Bible. And that's when he ended up basically proving it to himself. 
and which is kind of what Lee Strobel also did, who used to be a writer. I've mentioned him a couple of times, but he used to be a writer for the Chicago Tribune. And now both of them, uh, they still do things where they're doing apologetics to be able to clearly communicate and delineate uh, the truth and the veracity of the scriptures based on all of this evidence uh, that I'm giving you a flyby on this morning. This is what Josh said. The Bible compared with other ancient writings has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. And he has charts to show it, and it's pretty amazing. How about prophetically? Is the Bible, is the Bible, the veracity of the Bible prophetically in place? It's an important evidence especially concerning Jesus. The writing of the Old Testament took place hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to this earth. The writing of the Old Testament took place before Jesus was ever born. There were over 300 prophecies throughout the Old Testament concerning him. When Jesus came, by the time he left, he had fulfilled over 200 of them. To give you an idea of, of, of how incredible and miraculous and God-ordained that is, there was a man named Peter Stoner who was a scientist in the area of mathematical probability. He figured it out, and he said for one person to fulfill just eight of those 300 prophecies written over a thousand-year period of time, the probability of one man being able to do that would be ten, of eight of those prophecies prophecies would be eight to the 17th power. Now, honestly, here's what I do. I balance my checkbook. It's addition and subtraction. If you want to talk about algebra and the 10th power, I have no idea what that means. Here's what I do know because I saw the number. It has a lot of zeros. And smarter people than me can figure that out. But it has a lot of zeros. And what we understand is it is no accident. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed in Mark chapter 13, verse 2. He said, uh, verse two, he said, not one stone would be left on another. It happened in 70 AD. When Jerusalem was destroyed. The Bible predicted that Jewish people would be scattered to the ends of the earth, but at some point they would be regathered and reestablished as a nation prior to the end of time. Everybody scoffed at that. No nation comes back together. Guess what? They regathered and they were reestablished as a nation in 1946 to the astonishment and the amazement of the rest of the world. Again, the Bible was proven true because God knows, God ordains, and God takes care of the future. He speaks it. He knows it. He oversees it and overrules it. I'm running out of time. I want to drag this into today, 2021, and talk about how we understand and use the Bible today. Again, that was such a flyby. But hopefully for some of you who want to go a little more, more scholarly and a little deeper, that might whet your appetite. 
But what about the Bible and you today? February 21st, 2021. Here's the fact. For 39 years, I have encouraged people of all ages, backgrounds to read this book, to live the truth of this Bible, to apply it to their life. I've told you, I've determined that I'm going to bet the farm on this book. I'm going to bet my life on it. With heaven and hell in the balance, I can plan my eternity by it and for it and through it. I've, exchanged, I've, I've encouraged people to set their moral compass true north to this book. Psalm 119 says this, that it's a light unto our feet, and a, 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 a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It gives direction. It helps us know where to go and how to get there. It tells us how to relate to family and friends according to the relational rules of the road that are set down in the Bible. How to build our marriages and our families around it according to biblical patterns. Friends, hear me. I love this church. I love our community. If I thought for one minute the teachings of these books were off base, hurtful to the human psyche, that they would wreck relationships and cause problems and be counterproductive and damaging in any way to us as human beings, I I, I couldn't continue to teach this book. Could you? But I don't live with that kind of tension. When I was 18 years old, I made this decision that I would follow Jesus. And I have to tell you, it has always been easy, but I can't think of a better life that I could have had. I don't live in that that tension because I've come to my basic conviction about this book that it's God's word and God loves me and he knows what's best for me. I'm convinced that this Bible is the surest foundation that a person can build their one and only life on. I don't have time today and it really isn't part of where Jesus is going. Let me parenthetically just add this. Here's what I know. This book has been abused and people have used it to abuse others. Okay, that's the truth. And we could go back through history. But here's the truth. Like anything good, it can always be, anything good can always be abused. And it's not about the book, it's about the people who do it. Go back in history and see how this book has influenced people for bad and what's caused, the, you know, whether it's the, uh, the fighting and uh, all the division and disagreements and everything and the abuse that people put on other people because of it. I get that. I don't have time to unpack that, unload that, or really deal with that. Um, but there's a book by John Ortberg. I, it, it escapes me, but it's, uh, I think it's, What Man Is This? And it speaks of Jesus. And if you want to get a good understanding of what Christianity has done through history, read that book. Because what Christianity has done for people throughout all of history totally surpasses some of the the not so smart things that we did or Christians in the past have done. And frankly, some are doing today. Because religious people can really abuse this. But the wisdom 
and this truth from God's word has stood the test of time and it's, it's, it's contributed to people's stability and growth and deepening faith for thousands of years. Some of you were sitting here that I've seen and you were at your most difficult time and place and now you're here as it says in Mark 5 and that man was there sitting and clothed in his right mind. You want to know some terrible psychology or counsel? Let me tell you about it. It's any belief that puts a human being at the center of the universe. Because when we do that, if you do that with your life, you watch as the human being becomes self-obsessed, self-absorbed, and self-centered. They will alienate their marriage partner. They will alienate their kids, their friends, and their business partnerships, and just about everybody else around them. Their life will become a disaster with a capital D. Any belief that says guilt doesn't matter, divorce has little or no consequences, sex outside marriage is no big deal. The worst thing you can do is to discipline your children when they need it. Let's call that what it is. Bad news, terrible psychology, and not so smart thinking. Look at our world and see where we are. Hear me, politics cannot change the greatest problems on our planet. You can't make all of the laws in the world that can ever change a heart. You can't make laws to outlaw racism. There is no law that's going to turn a bigot racist's heart into being a lover. I'm not saying we don't deal with those things and they're important, but ultimately only God can change the heart. It changes people like you and me, who sometimes some looked at and said, I never, they'll never change. And then we got a hold of this book and we got a hold of the person that it talks about. And look at us. Oh, we're not perfect, but we are changing. This is God's life letter to you, his instruction manual for human life. It's been scoffed at, ridiculed. The Bible has been put down, but it's the only book that can set people free. I noted it earlier, John 8, 32. Jesus says, if you want to be free, know the truth. And don't just know it, but begin to walk in it, live it out. That's how you become free. Scripture I read earlier was from 2 Timothy where it talks about the, that, the, that the word of God is God breathed. It's God created. And it lists four things that it does for our lives. It says it teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us for righteousness. It teaches us, it shows us what to believe and what to do. <laughs> it, it rebukes us. It corrects us. It shows us what not to do, the dire consequences of our sin when we choose to do that. It corrects us. It shows us what to do when we didn't do what we were supposed to do. That we're supposed to confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9. That we repent, we turn from it. And we pursue God's perfect will and way for our life. Because we want to live for him. We want to please him. And it trains us in righteousness. It shows us how to stay on track to live rightly before God. And righteousness has to do to live before God because he's made us righteous and we live right before him and the people around us. Not perfectly, but we, we're always working and growing and moving toward Jesus for blessing and fruitfulness. It's the only book, loved ones, that can in, 
introduce people to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only book that people can plan a decent future and wonderful eternity on. It's the end of this, it's the end of this sermon. We'll get here in a couple of months. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the last thing that Jesus, one of the last things Jesus begins to talk about. He's studying and he, or he's teaching and he's looking at these people and they're listening and he looks at them and he says, everyone who puts this, puts their wisdom, puts their life in the wisdom of this book, my teachings and my word, and they put it into practice, their life will be like a builder who builds a house on a solid rock foundation. The wind can blow, the storms can come, life can change, the earth can shake. But that house, your life, your house can stand in the midst of whatever comes. What's he saying? Listen, friends, the wisdom of my word works. You can build your life on it. You can trust it, but you need to embrace it, obey it, and conform your life and thinking to it. And here's the truth. You will never, ever regret it. It's a book unlike any other book. It stood the test of time and it's eternal. Here's what I want to do as I close. I want to challenge you. Read a portion, a little portion, maybe just one chapter of this book every day. Start in one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because they focus on Jesus, who he is and what he's done and how we emulate that. And we become an imitator of Christ. Just one chapter. And if you're an overachiever, read a chapter from Proverbs. Today's February 21st, so read Proverbs 21 today. Tomorrow, Proverbs 22. And if you're, if you're like an A-plus student, you've never had anything less than an A in your life, try and memorize one scripture a week. Take one of those small Proverbs and begin to memorize it. Take it into your heart. That's what the scriptures say in, 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 uh, in, in Psalm 119. It says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And parents, I challenge you to make sure you help your kids understand the importance of this truth, the importance of this book in their lives. If you spin your kids out into this crazy world, this lost world of ours, and they are going to struggle to find true north. They're going to struggle if they don't know Jesus in his word to know which way to go because there's a cacophony of voices out there that are telling you, go the way of the world. Worldly wisdom is the best. It's the smartest. And that's not true. My strongest recommendation is that you pursue and embrace the central teachings of the scripture. It is there that we see there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. That there's a God, Jesus Christ, who loves you so much that he went to the cross to die for you. To die on behalf of your life, to, to forgive you of your sins. And if you follow him, he'll establish your life and he'll build it. And you can set your course toward him and heaven. I've seen people walk away from church and the Bible. They go out, they go through a few marriages, maybe an addiction, maybe their finances get in arrear. And it's always interesting, they come back 
oftentimes with tears or disappointment or embarrassment. And they'll look at Matt and they go, man, PTA, you think God, do you think God would let me come back? And there's people that think that. Are you kidding me? That's, that's what repentance is when you change your direction and they come back and they say, would God, would he, I mean, I've, 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 man, I've just gone against his word. I've done everything that I could think of. Here's what God says. Oh, come home. Oh, come home. That's why we have this good, good father. That's why we hear the story of the prodigal son. The father's waiting. He's looking. And all of a sudden he sees his son coming. He stinks. He's been in sin. He's been hanging out with hookers. He's been in with the pigs. He's been sweating. He's a mess. He took his dad's wealth and he squandered it. But his dad is waiting. And Jesus is telling this story. And he says, that's what my father's like. You know who he's talking to, don't you? A bunch of religious people who would have never thought for a million years that that person could that boy would ever come back. Not only does he come back, but he's given more than he ever had. That's the good, good father. And I want to just say today, if you're here, if you're online and you need to come home, the father says to you, come home, change your path, change your direction, come back. And if you've never put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, if he's never punched your ticket for heaven and for this life to grow in him, trust the words today of this book and respond and say, Jesus, I choose today to follow you. Would you quietly stand with me, please? Just bow your heads and yeah, you don't have to bow your heads. You can look around. I don't care. <laughs> Here's the deal. Sometimes when we do this, I, I want to give anybody an opportunity just to raise your hand this morning. If you've never received Jesus, if you're online and there's something that is spoken to you today and you know you need to come home or you need to make a step and say, I, I want to believe this word. I want to respond to this savior, this person that I can bank my life on because he's forgiven my sins and he wants to give me a true north. You can just pop, you can just click on the little hand icon there that says, I want to walk with Jesus. Or there, I think there might be another one that says, I want to recommit today. Come home. And what I would invite you to do, I'm going to say a prayer and I invite you just to pray with me if that's you. Some of us may need to recommit. Some of us may need to make that first step to follow. Some of us may need to say, Lord, I need to get into your word. But let the Lord speak to you during this time. Let's pray. Father, we come here. We don't bow. We're not bowing our heads today. We're lifting them up because you said you're the glory you're the weight of God and you're the one that lifts our head. Why? So we can look around. No, so we can look up to you. And to this morning, Lord, I pray that there will be those people who say today to now, I want to look into the face of God. I want to see Jesus. And I choose today to follow him and to walk with him. 
Would you, through the presence of the triune God in your Holy Spirit, Lord, begin to speak to people now, whether it's to take that first step to follow, to take that about step and to come back, or to take another step to be people of your word. So today, Lord, I pray over Creeksiders. I pray for our online friends that are Creeksiders or friends from other places that, Lord, you would speak to, solidify, cement, nail down, stake this time in their life today that they said, today it's going to be different because I choose Jesus because he's chosen me. And so, Lord, we, we lift our heads to our good, good God. And we give you thanks for that today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen.